Toronto FC, a team with a new direction after an off-season makeover. It's an all-Canadian affair. Matt working against Morgan. Puts it across the Lions! Yes! Marco DeVille! That's what we expected from him! To make those rainbows in my mind when I think of you sometime and I wanna spend all time with you just the two of us. And welcome to a special edition, a cross-posted edition of our two podcasts, the Two Solitudes and the Five Rings podcast. A little bit of uh, explanation before we get going. We're we're here primarily to talk about the turf lawsuit, which came down the pipe uh, right after, like almost hours after we uh, taped taped Wednesday's Five Rings. So there's a lot of details and there's been a lot of stuff up and a lot of talk about that in the last few days. And it's a a very interesting uh, sort of thing. Another piece of major news broke right after we taped five rings, and that is that Oslo pulled out of the 2022. We have those two main components that we need to talk to in a special five rings edition. Uh, We're cross-posting the two solitudes because there's another bit of news within the Canadian soccer world, uh, within the soccer world in general. Uh, Marco DeVille, who's uh, the designated player for the Montreal Impact, is announcing his retirement today, today being Friday at uh, 12.30 in a press conference in Montreal. So, the way this is going to work, folks, is we're going to uh, we're going to talk about the turf off the top. Then we're going to take a quick little break, and we're going to talk about Marco DeVio in the middle segment. We'll give you a timestamp, uh, Five Rings listeners, if you want to skip that uh, and just you know fast forward it through and get to our final segment about Oslo. Uh, you can just do so with the time segment. We'll give you on our description, and the same thing applies to the uh, two solitudes listeners if you you just want to. Uh, skip by and just want to listen to Marco DeVille's talk, you can just isolate it and and do that as, if you wish. But by all means, listen to the whole podcast, too. Oslo's interesting. I think it all ties into the whole FIFA mess, too. It talks about this sort of uh, expectations that uh, these major uh, FIFA and IOC, which are, you know, 1A and 1B in terms of the big bad wolf in the world international sport, uh, what they kind of expect of nations and how that plays out on the ground. Absolutely, especially this week, wow. The timing of our posting of our show, if it would have been delayed for an hour or two, would have had so much more to say. But unfortunately, it seems like they're always waiting for us to drop our shows and then drop their news. Yes, that's exactly what the IOC is doing. <laughs> it's all those, those po- politicians in Norway. We have mass millions of listeners in Norway, right, Kevin? Well, yeah, well, there's a FIFA press conference today in Montreal. And guess what the impact did? They scheduled a press conference at the exact same time. Oh, good, good, good for the impact. <laughs> so it's kind of like the same story. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Uh, let's take a quick break. We're gonna go, we're gonna come back and we're gonna talk about Turfgate. And welcome back. And uh, should we play the bumper, Kevin? Yep. Come on. Let's talk about turf. 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 All right, so uh, we're back after that. Uh, we've been running that bumper on both of our shows for a little while now, uh, not to be dismissive of the case. Uh, Kevin, before 
we get into the nuts and bolts of this, and I have uh, done a lot of work on this in the last couple of days. If you uh, go on my Twitter feed, I literally tweeted out point by point the entire claim that was made uh, by the women to the CSA and FIFA. I, I summarize it in more layman's terms than, than legalese that's in the in the brief if you want to go through that. Uh, there's a story file out there that uh, that someone was nice enough to make for me. Um, I will uh, make sure that that gets retweeted into the uh, Five Rings podcast feed if you want to go read the point-by-point bulletin of uh, the women's claim against FIFA and the CSA. But before we get into that, Kevin, I want to I want to keep this balanced. I want to talk about uh, what it what there is about the women's claim that that's that's legit and. Uh, you know what we talk a lot in the show about why it's legally baseless, and, and I maintain that position. But there are some ethical, some moral, some just philosophical strong points to what they're saying. So I think we'll start there. Okay. Um, I, I think the the key point here really is like, the, does the CSA and they talk about this in the brief? Does the CSA have the ability, have the financial wherewithal to play these games on turf, whether it be uh, installed turf? or whether it be temporary installed turf. And and I think, Kevin, that we live in a, in a nation where we can afford those things, right? Well, yeah, I would say so. It's, exactly. it, I would say so, but the thing is, because it's so late, the the cost would be so much more extravagant just because of having to rush all the whole... Yeah, well, I'm talking about the original bid, like okay. why, why the CSA didn't just at the, at the beginning go forward with a grass bid. Um, this is an important thing to try and figure out and to try and talk about it in a non-defensive way. Um, I, as I've said many times when I talk about this, when I talk about the legal aspect of this, and, and I, I feel really uncomfortable in my constant defense of field turf because I don't like it. Um, I understand all, the, all those issues with it, but I recognize, as I've said many times before on this show and on Two Solitudes, that there are there's a lack of scientific backing to what I'm saying. Uh, the women put a couple of... Uh, studies in their in their article but as an article in the toronto uh, sort of the global mail you know, by Cathal kelly uh illustrated it's like you know it's like global warming if you uh you know want to find someone to, to prove it one way you probably can if you want to find someone to point it the other way you probably can too um there's just a lot of just different opinion out there and it's kind of junk science in a lot of ways and there's just nothing that absolutely proves it global warming is a bad example because you know i have a geography degree and i should know better but turf is like global warming i like it we should make a t-shirt out of it yeah global warming is real people but let's not get into that um it's it's like any type of science where there's like you can get someone to prove something and studies are are basically if you twist them in a certain way uh, they can prove whatever you want them to prove. I mean there there's articles that they cite in this thing that I wrote, you know, and I'm critical of their of their thing. Cattell Kelly's opinion piece was quoted in the brief that uh, that I summarized too, and he made fun of the the lawsuit the next day. So that tells you a little bit about how opinion can be twisted, right? Mm, yeah, absolutely. They they take what they need to push their point of view on either side of the coin, right? Yeah. You know, to go back to what we are talking about before, when this first broke, um, I was massively critical of the CSA. I asked the question. I can remember to this day asking uh, Peter Montopoli, the, uh, the general secretary of the CSA, at a press conference uh, when I clued in because I was at the press conference where they announced that they, the bid was going forward and they – we're reading out all the stuff, and it was occurring to me that there was no mention of grass at all in this, and there was no 
uh, like always assumed when we knew they were betting for this for a long time, we just always assumed they were going to put temporary grass in. It's just it's how past World Cups have always worked where turf was the primary surface there. So when it became clear to me that that, that wasn't part of the case, I asked, I said, is there any provisions to put grass in at any point and he point blank said to me no there is not this thing will entirely play to be played on turf to the point that they ripped perfectly good grass out of Moncton which still makes me angry but at any rate uh, it, this has never been part of the bid but and why like why would they push the angle here and this is where you get into sort of some of that speculative stuff about what it means to 2026 and i guess we can go there uh next kevin Do, in your opinion um because i know my opinion is well out there so let me ask you what is your opinion of that do you think that canada has only bid for the 2015 women's world cup as an effort to legitimize uh plastic pitches for a potential 2026 men's world cup bid I think they did it to legitimize themselves, to legitimize Canada as a host country to host the 2026. Turf is just uh, the result of the wanting of the actual World Cup in 2026. And I think it's... uh, They were not expecting the outcry they got, like especially this late. And I think they literally did not think it would have been such a big deal. Yeah, I don't know how they couldn't have thought that... uh... Because I, at the time, predicted it would happen. I mean, but no one else did it. Fairness, Kevin, you're, you're right. On one hand, that I, I, I'm a freelance writer. I was pitching this story to major media outlets in the United States and, and the UK uh, three years ago and wasn't even getting a response on it. I was telling people three years ago, not to toot my own horn, but I was telling people three years ago that this was going to be an issue. This was going to be a major talking point, that they there was going to be a fight over this. And, and at that time, because women's soccer is so far outside of the mainstream attention, outside of World Cups, outside of Olympics, that no one was paying much attention. And, you know, I think in this country... Uh, the women winning the bronze in London kind of blurred things a little bit too because it became a feel-good story. No one wants to talk about turf. You know, you talk about the type of reporters that suddenly get in talking about the Women's World Cup aren't soccer specialists. They don't even think it's a new... They wouldn't even occur to like a general sports writer in Canada a couple of years ago that turf for grass would have been an issue because we so commonly play games on turf here, right? Uh, yeah, and the best example I have, you remember when the Expos used to play in Montreal? The turf was bad at the big go, but nobody used to complain about it. Say, yeah, it's bad, but that's the way it is. And there's a, it is what it is kind of feel to usually the Canadian perspective on things. Like, yeah, that's the way it is, it's turf, and we'll deal with it. We'll content ourselves with it. Which the 40 players who signed that lawsuit and that uh, the proceedings don't feel that way. Like, no, we want something to change. So... I think there's a different mentality that talk, talk to the uh, the opinions of the athletes on that as well. Yeah, and look, the, in the article that I mentioned earlier in the Globe and Mail today, uh, Kelly said that it wasn't about science, it was about her feelings, and that's um, fairly flippant language that's going to offend a lot of people. I've seen hashtag sexism uh, bantied about in relation to that. Um, it, it is... A- not about science though you know hurt feelings is a bit flippant i get that that it's dismissive of their opinion but but the science simply doesn't back up their opinion like the, the there is no conclusive science about the injuries and the women have put injuries front and center on this claim uh they have it's one of the three points of injury that they put out in this uh injury using a legal term here uh that they put in the claim is that that there is a, they use very hyperbolic language too, like a massively increased potential. It's very dangerous, they say, stuff like that. 
like points that are like completely absurd. They truly are. And I know there's people that will listen to this that, that support the women, and that's that's fair enough. But but the, the, there is no non antidotal evidence that suggests that turf is even a little bit worse than than grass, let alone very dangerous. By using terms like that. They've really, I think, done themselves a disservice because they've set themselves up to be attacked uh, and to be discredited with with science. Because there's going to be like quite um, black and white sort of ways to to discount some of these claims that they've made because they are so extreme. You mentioned Kevin Kelly, the way he used the hurt feeling expression. I've been talking the last couple of shows that we talked about turf. How it seems like you know when you don't listen to somebody for a long time. And they keep trying to make a bigger wave to make you listen. Well, hurt feeling is just another way to describe that feeling. So it's just putting different words. But I have to agree with Kato Kelly on that. That it, that's what it is. They were they didn't spoke when it was a time, and now they're they're want they're not being accounted for. So they're just making ripples and waves to make sure that they get what they want. And it's I don't consider it sexism. Exact opposite. I consider it a little bit of a selfishness yeah i mean they're not they're, if we'll get into this in a little bit more detail in the end i mean they give recommendations and how to fix the problem and they're not even factoring the cost in at all when they do that i mean the recommendations are to put install permanent grass pitches in edmonton vancouver and and Moncton. like it's it's stuff that's just not even reasonable uh, within a Canadian political context, so they and they say right in their their recommendations at the end of it, they say they don't care. They, there's actually a line that we don't care how this happens; we just want it to happen. And then they, which is their way of saying they're to use a legal term that they're giving it without prejudice, meaning that they don't want their recommendations thrown back at them to say that they're they're trying to work or something like that. It's just a legalese, but yeah, uh, yeah they they don't really haven't haven't really given much thought to the economic part of it. Uh, I guess their their opinion is that. If Canada wanted to host this, that they should, uh, there should be a requirement. They, basically, what they're asking for is that there be a requirement for the the tournaments to be played on grass, and they're going to on to claim that there is a requirement that the men's tournaments are played on grass, and and therein lies the core of their sexual discrimination uh, lawsuit. That there's a double standard at play that the women aren't required to play on grass, but the men are. As I've said many times before, there is no such provision. If you read the FIFA regulations and rules and laws and all that sort of thing, there is absolutely nothing that prevents a men's tournament from playing on grass. They would argue that um, because just, even because the rule is not there doesn't necessarily mean discrimination isn't happening uh, because there's evidence based on, on activities, based on behavior that suggests that there's an unspoken rule. And that's a more difficult thing to prove legally, and I don't know if you can, uh, because I do think to go back to a point I made a few minutes ago that that this is from the twenty that there is part of Canada's strategy is in fact about twenty twenty six. I think they're right on that. They can't prove it, but I think they're right on that. And I was first to say it, so I should think it was right. Um, and it's to do with legitimizing turf as a surface. If Canada simply put will not host 2026 if turf in some capacity is not uh, part of that bid. Uh, I truly discount and do not believe this idea that people have that the men will never play on turf. I think that's absurd and that ignores technological advances and I think that ignores just the way the wind is blowing right now. Turf will be part of the 2026 bid. Canada will bid in 2026. In fact, I think the U.S. might bid with turf in 2026 too. And that's why the USSF is so silent on this issue. 
I, I, that's I, another thing that's a good point that you're making, Dwayne. We haven't heard the stance of the actual United States Soccer Federation on that. Well, the, the closest we have is when the uh, original bids went through, and there was, of course, Zimbabwe dropped out, and Canada was the only one left standing. There still was a review of the bid. They still had to vote to accept it. And there was only one federation that voiced um, concern about the It wasn't the USSF. It was the Australian Federation. So I think that, you know, that they spoke by their silence there, I think, is that they weren't opposed to this. Now, someone could argue that it was in their best interest to have the tournament in CONCACAF, um, things like that, of that nature, that they didn't want to ruffle the feathers. They wanted to, have, you know, it's good for their fans to be able to travel up here. It's easy, it's more, it's better for the women, like they're more comfortable in a North American environment. They're their own team. Uh, those things probably have some relevance, but I think also that there, there's probably just the USSF also recognizes at a at a government's level that there is benefit to the U.S. as well if turf becomes legitimized because the U.S. is this country that has a lot of turfs out there. Okay. If they want if they want to host 2026, they're going to have to spend an awfully lot of money, less than we would because there is they do have more grass pit fields out there, but they would have to spend an awfully lot of money to uh, convert a lot of fields into grass for just a month. And, and that's just an expense that if they don't have to make, why would they make it? Exactly. And is turf really worse than temporary real grass as well? That's another question. Well, I don't think it is. I think exactly. the temporary real grass is probably worse than turf. Uh, there is a solution, the, the Sweden solution, uh, which lays – I'm not, I'm not a grass expert in terms of how it's sodded. But there, if you look at the uh, European Women's Championship and how Sweden converted their, their plastic pitches to, to grass over there, there was a slightly more advanced technique that they used. And those that watched that tournament, and I watched the tournament, I really wasn't watching it with uh, an eye to the turf, but I did watch that tournament. I didn't notice anything abnormal about the turf. But those that did watch it say that the turf held up very well. So uh, there, there is uh, that solution uh, as well. I think, Kevin... Um, we should move a little bit to the procedural aspect of this now uh, because there's a lot of misinformation that's floating about about what's happening. And uh, if you go to Canadian Soccer News, I have a very detailed description of what the, uh, the Human Rights Tribunal of Ontario is, which is the vehicle in which they've um, put forth this complaint. And I use that term complaint purposely because the, the tribunal is a tribunal. It's not a court of law. Yeah, they can actually, do they actually have the power to well, do something about it? Most of the opinion that I have received in the last couple of days from those that should know is the answer to that is no. Okay. That they do not have the ability, the tribunal does not have the ability to force a change to grass. What the tribunal does and what it's set up to do, what its mandate is, is to award damages to those that have been, discrim- in their opinion, have been discriminated against. So that... There's a lot of really weird sort of things here. I mean, the discrimination, if you read the, the brief that the women put put forth, uh, sort of implies that the discrimination began with the decision to host the tournament on turf. That's where they're alleging the discrimination started with, which is what will allow them to proceed now, because otherwise they would really need to wait until a game was played on turf to then argue that discrimination had occurred. So... And, and even if that were the case, in that particular case, that's it's going back to this thing that they can't mandate change. They can't put an injunction, uh, you know, essentially to, yeah. to what they're looking for. They can't. By every lawyer, every Canadian lawyer I've spoken to, 
And I think that there's a lot of the reporting in the United States is relying upon American legal experts that have very limited understanding or experience or exposure to the Canadian system. So I would take their their opinions with a grain of salt. I'm talking to Canadian people familiar with how this tribunal works. They suggest that they don't have the legal authority to issue an injunction to force this change, that all they can do is award a financial settlement to the women uh, to pay for their, to compensate them for the, the discrimination that they've experienced, if that's found to be the case. Um, which I suspect means, and this is what I have speculated for a while, is that this is, and I don't mean this in a dismissive way, but this is part of a PR strategy in order to basically shame to change. They want to shame the CSA by getting an Ontario court to say that they are discriminated against women. This is why, and then they can hold that up and generate support within Canadians to make that change because that to me is the only reasonable way that they could possibly get this to switch is if they shame to change. And they'll be surprised to notice that I don't think a lot of Canadians are going to care that much about their complaint. Well, yeah, again, and we could, we talked about it earlier. We touched on it. It's played on turf in Canada. Um, I know from a Toronto perspective that there's a lot of people to this day in this city, in Toronto, that are completely dismissive of concerns that Toronto FC fans have over the Toronto Argonauts moving into BMO Field. Now, this is, for our Five Rings listener, this is a very local issue that I'm talking about here. But essentially, uh, to boil this down, what the fear is amongst the local clubs team here is that the football, the American Canadian football, like the tackle football team, would move into the soccer stadium and that their play would force... Uh, TFC, the local team, to tear up the pitch um, and probably put a high, or put some kind of hybrid pitch in or a or a field turf pitch in again or something, which is a battle that was fought and won here for a while. So to try and get people on side on this here that aren't soccer specifics, that aren't tied into the soccer world, this is the point I'm trying to make, they're just completely deaf to this. They're like, well, what the hell is the problem? People play on turf, don't be babies. That's literally the advice that we're getting. We're talking to a men's team here. So when you go to the Women's World Cup, the Canadians find out that the only Canada qualified, they're going to get their backs up when they hear some of the language the women are using about this about the demeaning behavior that the Canadian Soccer Association is has made towards women. When the CSA puts their budgets out and they demonstrate that they spend twice as much money on the women as the men, that's going to be a difficult sort of uh, thing to prove for them. So, you know, I just... <laughs> It's just not a, an argument that's going to get a lot of play because people in this country legitimately will look at it as as them being spoiled. And I'm not trying to be specific about the gender when I say that. They would say this thing and do say the same thing about TFC fans, about men's club team fans here in this city, that we're being spoiled by wanting this. I, I have to agree with you. It's kind of like a first world problem when you have, you're arguing about... Okay, it's an important situation. I agree. The surface of play, it's important. But is it important enough that it's going to affect the result? And if so, yes or no? And that should be the reason why change or not should affect. Not the whole... I still think, Dwayne, after all those months of talking about the situation, that the sexism issue has only been chosen as a talking point because it gets people's attention. And that, in a way, is doesn't seem... Uh, fair to me and doesn't seem a positive thing as well 
you know, we're coming up. There is a very a, a marked difference in opinion on this case outside of Canada. Uh, people outside of Canada, largely because of the way it's being reported, where you're not getting the other side of it, you're not getting a full uh, balanced discussion about it. You're really just getting the the women's position put forward. I do view it very plainly in their mind as a sexist issue. That's uh, again because they're not looking at it with any depth. They're not looking at it understanding that there's no rule in place that prevents the men from playing out. They're not. It's never being pointed out to them that the twenty the two thousand seven U twenty World Cup for men was played in Ontario, where the tribunal is, uh, with some of the most elite from Sergio Aguero is the biggest name that played in that tournament. He played the final in front of me in Toronto. So you know a guy that's right now. You know, playing in the Champions League for Manchester City, uh, played in the World Cup for Argentina, played on field turf, you know, amongst, and the very best, you, their second biggest tournament in the FIFA runs, so, for men, so that, it's second biggest tournament, period, it is bigger than the Women's World Cup in terms of exposure and, and size, so at least the same size now in terms of teams, but at any rate, um, they, it's just it's just not a gender issue when you really look at it. But on the surface, it plays as much. It's a sexy issue on the surface, especially. It's a really easy one to wrap your head around. Men don't play on turf. Women are. God, this is awful. You know, from a journalistic perspective, from like a quick twenty second hit on talk radio on ESPN or whatever, it makes sense that they're able to do that. But it's a, uh, it's just not getting talked with the proper amount of depth. Um, Kevin, I wanted to really quickly, another point I wanted to make real quick before we, we maybe drop on and, and go on. I mean, we're sure we're going to have lots of time, opportunity to talk about this moving forward. Uh, to go back to the procedure a little bit, um, a lot of people, especially in the United States, were uh, gleefully pointing out that the CSA, quote-unquote, was being, and FIFA, quote-unquote, were being forced to respond uh, within October 9th, that they demanded, I've heard this language, that CSA has been, it's been demanded that the CSA and the FIFA respond to the women's claims by October 9th. Um, that's procedure within the, this common procedure. It's just, if I put a frivolous claim out today against the, my grocer um, that was completely illegitimate, the grocer would still have have to respond how the tribunal works it is not at all commenting on the legitimacy of the claim or nor is the fact that the csa has been given a and fifa have been given a mandate to respond by october 9th uh, in no way does that indicate anything other than the procedure is moving ahead as it would in every other case there still is a possibility uh, through what's called a summary hearing that the csa or fifa or both, may apply to the tribunal and have the tribunal throw the case out before it gets to a hearing. This still could happen. There's nothing that has happened so far that in any way prejudices this case, in any way uh, legitimizes the claims. And I think people need to understand that. Yeah, I think we agree. And I think that's like you just said, we're not done talking about turf, unfortunately. Okay, um... Yeah, it, it, a couple uh, book bookkeeping uh, things here. I will um, the Storify, which goes through the kit, the, um, the the brief uh, point by point, sort of explains it. At least from my perspective, I tried to do it as straight as possible. I wasn't trying to get my opinion in there very much, folks. Uh, anyway, I'll I'll tweet that out to Five Rings. I'll also tweet out a link to the Cattell Kelly article that we're uh, we've talked about in this. Um, I'll tweet out a link to. 
my article I wrote in Canadian Soccer News, which explains the tribunal and sort of how it works. So uh, we'll get some information out there, and we'll try and uh, consistently get the, the Five Rings account uh, pushing that stuff out. All right, we're going to take a quick break. Uh, for those of you that are Five Rings listeners and don't really have an interest in domestic soccer, uh, this is where we're going to go in and talk about the Marco DeVaio retirement. Uh, that'll probably be 10 minutes or so. Uh, we'll get the timestamp up there for you. Just look for it, and you can just fast forward through that, and then we're going to come back in the segment after that and talk about the Oslo uh, 2022 bid. Thanks for listening to the Two Solitude Soccer Podcast on Stitcher Radio with Dwayne Rollins and Kevin Laramay. Subscribe to the show on Stitcher Radio. Listen to the show on Stitcher Radio. Stitcher Radio, Stitcher Radio. Would you just please subscribe to the show on Stitcher Radio? Thank you very much for subscribing to the show. And now, back to the show on Stitcher Radio. Coming soon on Stitcher Radio. And we're back, and uh, again, this is uh, more or less for the Two Solitudes uh, listeners, or sorry, yeah, for the Two Solitudes listeners. That makes my podcast up, Kevin. Yep, a lot of numbers and a lot of letters. The five two S's. Um, anyway, yeah, uh, we're going to talk about Mark DeVille. He's announcing his retirement today. This is not unexpected. There was a bit of a blip maybe for the last couple of months where some people in Montreal thought that maybe he might come back for one more year. There was some talk that maybe he might go back and play in Serie B or something for a year or two. Uh, but apparently, uh, he's just going to call it quits today, right? Yep. 12.30 is a press conference today by the Impact to announce the retirement of their first designated player ever, 21-season professional soccer. Uh, a lot of them with Serie A, with Bologna. He played for Monaco, played for uh, Juventus Lazio. He played for a lot of big clubs and finished his career with a new adventure in Major League Soccer, which was supposed to last for two years, lasted three People were wanting him to come back next year, especially Piatti, but you were not able to convince him. Marco Devaio misses his family. Moving on to uh, moving back to Europe, to Italy, and probably going to go to the either coaching side of things or front office, but for sure he's going to stay in the world of soccer. This is around the same time that we're hearing rumblings about Joey Saputo being part of the Saputo group, being part of the Bologna. Yeah, they, they failed. Uh, the, the Saputo attempt to actually buy Bologna failed. It got uh, surpassed by an Italian gentleman who actually bought the team. They actually put a million dollar in guarantee to win the team, but it wasn't enough. Uh, the court uh, awarded the team to another buyer. Okay. But, but still, it was uh, a plan that would have been really good to put in effect if Joey would have bought Bologna, then you put Devayo as a head coach or something. It would have continued the legacy of both men. Now Devayo, I wouldn't be surprised if he goes back to Bologna still as a, a minister over. Who knows? Who knows what can happen? But he did miss his family big time. And it's hard to uh, be by yourself alone in a city that, yeah, you've been here for a couple of years, but it's not your hometown and your family and your kids are not there. Uh, it's not good for your marriage, first of all, we all know that, so I think he was really missing his family. True, and I mean, he did have a, a, a compatriot with him for the last couple of years, but not this year, in terms of someone from his same background, same sort of experiences, and, and same age, and Nesta, that, that's no longer there anymore. I have to think that that kind of played a role, too, maybe. Oh, for, um, absolutely. He must have uh, maybe helped him make his decision at the end. Yeah, I mean, Nesta had to go, and... Nope. Ice this time last year. Not just that, the result of the club this season probably have to do. It was a hard season for him uh, with injuries, 
not as much a result that it used to be able to do like last year. Uh, we also we see that often though. The, in the last year of a professional player, usually they uh, they age exponentially, and in the last month they take years of age. Yeah, it, to try and do everything as himself, and it became very clear earlier this year. It wasn't quite as dramatic a drop off as Nesta. Uh, who yeah. was sitting in the stands for large portions of last year at the end. Like I, I, was about, I was saying there, I remember looking up at Beagle Field in October last year during the Montreal game, and Nesta was sitting beside or behind me in the crowd. And that was a bit startling to see someone of that nature just ending his career sitting in a freezing cold day in a BMO Field in Toronto watching a bad MLS game. It's kind of depressing, right? <laughs> um, DeVille didn't quite go out that poorly, I don't think. He seemed to have a bit of a revival of late in the last... Uh, month or so and i suspect maybe this might re-energize him you know the games are meaningless but this will allow montreal to without guilt maybe play him a bit more maybe try and get him a couple more goals especially when it gets to the very end i think that what you the playing him without guilt is a good way to put it because we all know how mls work you need actual chemistry between your players you need the players to get used to playing with themselves, and I would have put Jack Mack more at the end of the season, but now with the fact that DeVille is leaving, you want to get people in your stadium, because let's face it, hasn't been easy to fill up Saputo lately. So with the whole, the added bonus of DeVille bidding his farewell last couple of games left, for sure it's going to generate a little bit more positive response at the gate, right? Yeah, maybe he'll... Uh... You know, his final act maybe will be to eliminate Toronto FC from the playoffs in front of the 2,000 traveling fans. Is, is that maybe is what you got left to hold on to? Yeah, that could be a nice farewell cap. You know? Yeah, <laughs> fun times. Um, yeah. <laughs> anyway, let me uh, go this angle for you. Uh, you know, you've watched him throughout his time in Montreal, so let's, let's put aside, he had a great career in Italy. He was one of those guys... Uh, uh, that that sort of he wasn't playing for a Juve or for an Inter or for Milan or or, or what have you, but he was playing for the, one of those secondary uh, um, Di Natello. Uh, <coughs> from, yeah, Di Natale, yeah. Uh, yeah, from Inese is another guy that I think is very similar. Um, those guys that aren't as well known over there, but are just great scorers that played on these mid-table teams for years. So uh, he had a great career in in Italy. Um, however, let's just focus on his time in Montreal. What are your biggest memories of DeVille in Montreal? 2013 season, one of the best season ever for a striker in Major League Soccer. 20 goals in the league, 2 in the Canadian Championship uh, and in the Champions League, so 22 in 2014. In 2013, he's actually the leading scorer with 4 goals in the Champions League in his run, so he's tied with the club for a record, for a club record. But the tw- that season, with 22 goals was the type of season we were expecting. We were told the hype was said he was going to have scored plenty of goals, and he did. That season, actually, uh, if it wasn't for him, Montreal would have never qualified for the playoff. He gave Montreal a playoff game. One of his goals coming to Montreal was to do that. We can say he did it. All right, it might have not looked the best. He got expelled in that game, and, and we all know all that. But his legacy is still that he came over here. He said he was said he was going to do. There was, a, a, again, a small adjusting period at the beginning, but we see that with all the big designated players. We talk about the Henri and the Beckham and the Cahill and the Keane. It all took six months before they get used to it. But after those six months, well, the value is up there with all those names. Dwayne, I think, he's one of the best TPs the league I've seen. 
Certainly that year, yeah. Yeah, it, that year, that 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 that, that uh, 2013, that season, you know. And it sort of does. It also illustrates something, and I'm going to compare him to a DP that we had here in Toronto that that through injury never fully lived up to his expectation, but when he was on the pitch, was quite incredible, and that being Danny Kuvermans. They're kind of similar quality guys. It's why I'm bringing them together in terms of their what their exposure was before they came to MLS. Um, sort of what they did when they were healthy in MLS. And, uh, you know, if you look at uh, Kuverman's uh, goals per 90 stat, it, it's incredible. It was one of the highest in league's history. Um, I think that that might t- teach us a lesson about the type of player that works as a DP. You get a guy like uh, like Jermaine Defoe, not to belabor him, here in Toronto and all the problems associated with his sort of fame and his sort of Englishness um, might Teach us the type of player we should be targeting as a DP. Yeah, if you, you talk about mid-table, it's more of a... It's like top five or six strikers in the league, but you always remember top two or three that are with the big club. You know, the fifth or sixth best strikers in the league usually don't have the same type of... I wouldn't say prima donna feeling, but same type of expectation from a club. They, they content themselves with the small things, and they don't have an attitude towards it. They actually want to work and to to, to uh, work hard, practice hard, and play hard. And Devayo had nothing, we cannot, rep- there's no, nothing whatsoever wrong with his ethics. The way he practiced, practice hards every day, is a very serious player. And it's fun to see that type of player coming over to MLS, because we've seen the type of DP that doesn't necessarily come here with the right condition or the right attitude in their mind. Just look for Judino that came in New York last year, you know. Yeah, it's those DPs that come over here and are ready to work and work hard to achieve success. That's what we need in MLS. Well, yeah, I mean, look at his career in Italy. Uh, Devio, I'm talking about. He's a guy that you know, realistically, at the peak of his powers, he probably could have went over and gone to a Juve and been a third striker there or whatever, and maybe won a couple titles and all that sort of stuff but instead he stayed and was the top man on on a lesser club still a big club and you know, well, to be fair he played for Juve one season he played for Monaco he played but there were all adventures or experiences that he could not recognize himself with he was the best as a leader of not necessarily a top table team but as a leader of team a leader of men and when he knew people had confidence in him that's when he actually was able to perform yeah, well, that's what I was getting at, that he didn't, you know, go for years and just chase a trophy here and there, right? He wasn't a glory hunter, per se, um, you, you know, bouncing around Syria to team to team to team like some of those guys could. He didn't do that sort of stuff. He preferred to be on the team where he could be dominant, where he could lead, where he could maybe maybe not win, maybe get – glory was nicking one of the big teams in a big game rather than winning a title, right? That's a different kind of mentality. And yeah, I think that fits. He had a better, a bigger impact on a club like Bologna. Be able to stop them, kept them in Syria for almost fifteen something years, and it tells you a lot that the year after he leaves the club, the second year he's gone, they're dropped to Syria B. You know, he was the one who kept them in Syria for all those years. Yeah, and that that's I think speaks well to the MLS experience where you're going to have frustrations, you're going to have up and downs. I mean, to bring it back to just compare him again to a Defoe-type player, you see Defoe here in Toronto getting frustrated, getting pouty on the field. It happens all the time. Not that DeVille didn't do that a little too. but Especially in the beginning. Uh, but there's just a, a difference in the sense that he's not like running back to England or running back to Italy in this case, looking for a way out after six months. 
Um, you know, maybe Defoe will come, turn around and come back. We don't know. Probably not. But I mean, I think it just speaks a difference in sort of their their mentality. So I, you know, the point I'm making is that Devile, uh, you know, and I'm a Toronto guy, so this is me talking honestly here. Uh, he was a great DP. He was one of the best DP signings in the league for sure. I mean, the only issue I would have with him. Uh, was the age when he came over. It's just unfortunate that you couldn't get him a little younger. Um, I know Italian players, for whatever reason, tend to play better later, but it's still, I think, that would be the only sort of criticism you could give upon Montreal for signing him, is that they really only ever had the chance to have one season out of him. And is that worth it? Is that the way that you want to build your image and build your team? I think maybe in a team like Montreal's case to defend them a little bit, I don't know if they have a lot of options there. They're not going to get an Henri, you know? They're not the New York Red Bulls. They they need to find those guys like that that might be willing to come over. And if they can get success with them, then the reputation spreads. He goes back to Italy, says, I had a great time in Montreal. It's a wonderful city. It's a fun city. It's a vibrant international city. Uh, the fans are good. Uh, the, the club is run professionally, whatever the case may be. And then they go back, and then maybe you get a slightly younger uh, version of that person next. And I think that the Piatti signing is the result of that thinking as well. With a 29, 30-year-old DP now, you can easily think that he has, has at least five or six years in him in that league. So we'll see a big difference there. But you're right. It, I always have the feeling what could have been if Devayo came here four or five years ago. But it, it, we did not have him in our team, but still, you know what I'm saying? If the conditions were there, he could have had a great impact on Major League Soccer if he came earlier. All right. Is there any chance we get some kind of curveball today that he's going to play his final game in the quarterfinals or something like that, or is, is he just no. gone? Uh, he said two weeks ago that coming back for one game would be foolish, and I have to agree with him. Yeah, no, I agree too, but you you never know. <laughs> People already ask him, like, no, dude, don't say that. Don't. But what if they win the game? Then he has to come back for the semis too, right? Yeah, and is it, he's going to take the spot of somebody else then. He's not going to be a part of the team anymore, and... It's in six months from now, so it's going to be it's a long time from now. If he already aged that badly in the last six, wait for the next six. Remind me, are you is Montreal at home in the last week of the season? I think they are October twenty. I think so because they played Toronto in the second last week of the season. So I'm just trying to I'll quickly look here while we're talking uh, to see how they end, just to sort of get an idea. I'm wondering how he might go out, whether they'll they'll like allow him to. I don't have the schedule by heart, but uh, I think I've seen the October 24th as his last game. So that would mean the week after the Toronto game. Yeah, I'm just uh, taking a quick look here now. I'm doing the same thing. Uh, You're playing DC United, yes. Okay. So there's one game left after. It's going to be his farewell. Yeah, that'll be the game now. So there you go. Um, all right. Uh, real quickly, uh, before we go, since this is an MLS segment, uh, the TFC playoff push got a little break last night with a very late goal by a former TFC player, Robert Earnshaw. Chicago Fire won the, or now with the all-time draws record in MLS with a 1-1 draw over Philadelphia last night. I don't know, Kevin, if you saw that game or if you saw how that played out. No, I didn't. Okay, it was crazy. They there's no goals until like the late the 88th or 89th minute. Philadelphia scores the goal that makes everyone in that building uh, think oh. that they're going to go into the playoffs. And then and, and then not. Yeah, I saw the a last goalkeeping one. error and Robert Earnshaw scores the biggest goal he ever scored for Toronto FC. <laughs> <laughs> 
Anyway, so that leaves uh, the we're go- we're going to debut a new feature on Monday. The uh, the super awesome push to the playoffs for TFC. Wait for that; it's going to be amazing. <laughs> Everything is awesome. Everything is awesome. Everything is cool when you're part of a team. Anyway, all right, uh, we're going to take a quick break. We're going to come back. We're going to talk about Oslo 2022. We'll say goodbye to our two Solitudes listeners that don't want to listen to the Olympics right now, and uh, we'll tell our five Rings listeners that listen to this segment that uh, you can always listen to more of this talk on Two Solitudes every week, but uh, we'll see you in about 30 seconds or so. Like the Littlest Hobo, the Five Rings podcast is a podcast that aims to give you the things in the life that you just can't get anywhere else. Unfortunately, like the Littlest Hobo, we need to eat. So we would like you to help us in your own way, if you can, by contributing in the final ways. So if you can contribute to the Five Rings podcast and help us and the Littlest Hobo out, please do so the following ways. You can do so on PayPal. Our PayPal is dgrollins, that's D-G-R-O-L-L-I-N-S, at gmail.com. Or you can do so through an EMT transfer at csndonation at gmail.com. That's CSN, for Canadian Soccer News, donation at gmail.com. That's csndonation at gmail.com. And, of course, you can always download us on Stitcher Radio. And if you do so, I promise that I won't talk about the Littlest Hobo anymore. Ah, well, everyone loves the Littlest Hobo. Who doesn't love hobos? And we're back. Uh, Oslo 2022, the games no one wants. Oslo doesn't want them, Kevin. No, Oslo decided, the government decided to pull the funding... And that automatically means that the bid's been pulled from uh, the IOC. Yep. Uh, they basically balked. They looked at the final numbers that have associated the, the estimated $51 billion price tag and uh, said, no, we can't, we can't do this. Uh, we're, we can't possibly commit this type of money. The IOC reacted instantly and just defensively and completely deaf to the concerns that are being voiced across the democratic world. Um, the IOC in a, in a statement, which you got to go read it. It's a, it's easy to find. Just type in Oslo 2022, Ben, you'll find the statement, but it's on the, the newspaper from yesterday too. It's yeah. all like La Presse, Global, all those newspapers said that the, the, Basically, the Aussie was was angry that the Oslo politicians pulled out of a meeting that was supposed to be scheduled with them earlier this week because they basically made their mind up already and and then claimed that they were making their decision based on, quote, unquote, half-truths and factual inaccuracies. So basically what the IOC is saying is that every single country that has hosted the Olympics in the last 25 years is lying and is giving inaccurate financial information. The games have bloomed out of control in terms of cost. That's why we have a situation right now where Beijing and Oman countries left bidding for an Olympic game. There's no Asian bid left. Almaty isn't, isn't or sorry, no European bid left. Almaty is technically in Asia. So, I don't know, Pakistan is Asia, Europe, it's hard to say, but it's closer to Asia in terms of its feel and its, its positioning in the world than than Europe. And they certainly wanted a Western Europe games, and they're not going to get them because the games are too expensive. <laughs> Oh no! And what I found surprising too it was the reaction of the IOC saying after we're not going to reopen the bidding process to get more, more cities or more countries. We're not going to reopen the cases. It's going to be either Almaty or Beijing, and that kind of left me left me cold. I'm like, yeah, I think we're going to have to uh, accept the idea that we're going either to Almaty to Beijing, and that 
the games like we knew them are done. Yeah, look, and that's the the report are all saying they're basically chastising the IOC for for refusing to to adapt. And uh, the very first question, if you go back to the very first weekly edition of the Five Rings podcast, uh, one of the very first questions I asked to the games bids uh, gentleman, our friend there, was, yeah, Robert Livingston, thank you, uh, was that. are we at a point where democratic countries won't bid for these games anymore? And he, he at that point said, no, he didn't think so. But this is exactly what evidence we're having right now. I, like I, we live in Canada, and there are rumblings of the, of the Canadian bid. I, I think, Kevin, the only place that could possibly get the type of uh, public support needed for a bid would be the province you're in because they're a little more inclined in Quebec to support stuff like that. But even there, it's got to be a bit of a challenge when you have other – financial burdens that a government has to deal with. Am I not right? Yeah, they're building a new arena in a city that doesn't have a hockey team right now. So that tells you the type of... There's a, a couple of mayors that have been here for like... A, the Quebec City mayor have been here for about a decade. There's a new Montreal mayors. Those mayors are really sports savvy and they want to have big sports. And But it's all for show. We all know that. It's because sports event gets more talking, they get more publicity, and they get another election out of it. And in Quebec yep. City, we saw $400 million of public funding being used to build an arena that still won't be used half the year. And to me, it tells me that, you know, even though Quebec City tried twice to have the Olympic, Montreal had them before, but it was a different time. And they had him because there was almost no choice. It got him like, a, if you read the book about how Montreal got the Olympics, first of all, it was a, it's almost a spy book. It's really, really interesting in all the aspects. But I don't think uh, we should even try in Quebec or Montreal or wherever else in Canada right now to get a games because 2010, even though it's only four years ago, Dwayne, a lot of things changed since then. I don't even think we can afford the games anymore. Yeah, actually, it's I agree, unfortunately. And again, I mean, that's why people are so dismissive of the Pan Ams here in Toronto are missing the point. It's at this point in time, the way the world is working getting an Olympic Games in Toronto, although we could afford it if we wanted to prioritize it, it, that's not the issue. It's that why would we prioritize spending that much money when, you know, we have a subway system that's blowing gaskets in the middle of the day and stranding people all over the city and stuff, right? Like, why would we prioritize that when we have infrastructure improvements that we need for our day-to-day lives? Um, it's interesting you brought up the Montreal example, and if you look back at that history, there's there's very there's similarities to what's happening now. If you look at that bid, there weren't it's very the same many thing. Yeah, there weren't a lot of people that were still willing to do it. It was only the places that and the Quebec government back then had a lot of agendas going on. We'll just leave it at that. That made them want and desire to do something dramatic. They were coming off the expo in '67. Uh, that was very inspiring to the people of Quebec. There was a whole sovereignty movement that was going on that they think that that was part of the philosophies behind it. There's a lot of factors that were going on that made it worthwhile to the Quebec government to support that to a level which we later found out was absurd and strangling to the people of Quebec and, and lesser to Canada, but mostly to Quebec and Montreal, right? To the, to the smokers of Quebec especially, because they paid entirely the Olympic season, which was supposed to cost less than $100 million. Finished paying a couple years ago to the amount of two point something billion dollars. As I said before, I tweeted out the day that the Olympic Stadium was uh, was paid for. That in Olympic Games in 1976, I reported that it was paid off in full in a tweet. Think about that. Um, 
But at any rate, to go back to the comparison, what happened then was there was an adjustment in how Olympic Games were presented, not in 1980, because we all know what happened in 1980, uh, the, and the Winter Games were much lower at this point, so we don't even, they're not even on the same level. Summer Games in 1980, of course, were boycotted in Moscow, so you can't really count them, and they were also in a communist country. But in 1984, boycotted in Los Angeles, there was a primary difference, and that was basically when this idea of hyper-branding and the big TV contracts and all that sort of stuff came in. And at that level and at that scale of the games, they suddenly became a little more desirable. Uh, they weren't as expensive. They weren't as uh, cost prohibitive as they are now. And it's because since 1984, when they brought in all that corporate branding, all the big you know Coke sponsorship stuff, all the, the stuff that people don't like that's a bit crass but does make the Olympic movement money, it's when it first came in. Since that time, the costs, especially the security costs, have boomed up to the point that that no longer covers it. So they they made an adjustment that it wasn't again it wasn't the LSE that made the adjustment though it was the Los Angeles organizing committee that figured out a way to make money off of it. Um, that's they're going to need something like that again. They're going to need someone somewhere, probably outside of the IOC Old Boys Network, that will will come forward and come up with an idea that will make this profitable again for places to have it. I mean, we've talked many times in this show about the need for change and how we get dramatic change in how Olympics are presented if we want them to continue the way they are. Either we're going to keep going to places like Almaty and Beijing, which, with all due respect to Almaty and Beijing, the the sort of the human rights issues in those places, the fact that they're they're not dem- democratic, those countries, that's really troubling to, to anyone. It should be troubling to anyone that ethically thinks about these things. You know, unless we want to continue going back to them, we're going to have to dramatically change how we present them. And, and Kevin will repeat those opinions. Um, I still believe that the solution is to either go with country bids rather than city bids, which is sort of a half step. And I think that would reduce some of the costs associated, although the federal government uh, the national governments do take a lot of the burden as it speaks anyway now, but it would take a little bit of the local burden away. That might be a half solution, or I think this multiple venues all over the world, because it's a TV event to recognize that. That is so far beyond our comprehended pension, our perspective of how it's worked, that it's going to be difficult for people to wrap their head around that. But when you think about it, the city of Toronto could host gymnastics now, right? Without a big expense, there'd be Olympics here. People could go watch an Olympic event. I'm just pulling gymnastics out of my butt when I say that. But you know what I mean? Like, you could cluster them. You could have four sites or something like that. And you would have, you would spread the Olympic movement out to different parts of the world. You would may reduce the cost um, prohibitiveness nature of them. You could probably even include more sports in them if, you were, if you're spreading out the venues and not making one nation, one city responsible for it. It's not how they work now. But, Kevin, we're going to need a major change unless we want to keep going back to all Maddie's. And that brings up a question to my to, to me, and I'll ask you the question. There's, it's like there, there's a blame. There's a fault, somebody at fault there. Is it the IOC with their uh, grinder vision, or is it the actual organizing committee that's always trying to push the envelope, and eventually the cost just climbs out of control? I think there's blame to go on the local level, and uh, but certainly I think the IOC burdens a lot of it. I mean, they push and demand certain things out of them. The IOC is, without the IOC demanding that people put bigger and bigger and bigger games on, these organizing committees wouldn't go out of their way to put bigger and bigger and bigger games on. They would put, you know, do we really need to build a bloody, that thing that they did for swimming in Beijing, the the cube? Do we really need something that insane? No, they need a swimming pool. (laughs) So, 
And they need a swimming pool like that. The Beijing bubble is now it's like a it's I think it's a water park like it's yep. a slides and stuff like that. And it looks very nice, but it's not an elite swimming pool anymore. I think you need athletic facilities like we're building here in Toronto at the Pan Ams that are sustainable and are community focused after the fact that aren't going to bankrupt a city. They're going to cost a little bit of money. They're not going to be free these games to ever put on. But they're good, they're going to sustain and they're going to leave legacies behind. I'm not sure that the things that they're building right now for these games are going to necessarily bring things behind. And that there, there's some great photos out there of the of the current state of the facilities oh. in Athens. Oh, don't look at it. You'll be you'll be uh, depressed. Well, but I think it illustrates what I just one of the famous ones is the baseball diamond, which is basically just a overrun field now, right? Yeah. I mean, you still have the stands are kind of sitting there, run down with like you know stray cats and stuff like that, but. By and large, why the hell did he ever – would we play baseball in a place that doesn't play baseball? I mean, I know baseball isn't in the games anymore. But in that particular case, wouldn't you cluster like baseball and basketball and and other popular sports in, in North America into like, I don't know, the United States or Mexico or Canada or wherever? And then you could put handball and rhythmic gymnastics and things like that that are popular in Eastern Europe. You'd put them in Eastern Europe somewhere, you know? It's still the Olympics. It's still on TV because it's a team the vast majority of the world because the vast majority of the world cannot afford the airfare and the hotels and everything else that it costs to go to these places because they're so inflated during the games. It would also then, because there would be more venues out there, there would be less costs associated in those venues and you could have more fans go and watch them live and experience the Olympic experience. I know you wouldn't get a big march in at the start and the finish with the opening and ser- closing ceremonies and that the athletes might lose a little bit of this of that sort of big dynamic sort of feel about it and I get and I understand and appreciate that that would be sad that would be a loss but the alternative is to have these games either scale down massively which will reduce many more athletes going into it or having them go to places where human rights are an afterthought or there's always the one idea we had a couple months ago of okay costs will be will be a lot of costs at the beginning of it but back in the uh, Greece back ancient, go- ancient Greece, yeah, ancient Greece. They always had the games at one spot, and people used to travel, and it was a pilgrimage to that site. And I think it's almost we can do the same thing. There's a just built a city that's only built for the Olympics. And that's all it does. And okay, it's going to cost a lot of money the first time, but over the years, eventually you're going to recoup that money. You know? Yeah, you can do something like that. You can do a double cycle. Yeah. Uh, so so Olympics. Um, you're building venues for eight years rather than four years, which would at least make uh, the sustainability a little bit more arguable at a local level. You know, if, if Vancouver, if we just hosted Vancouver in 2010 and 2014, uh, maybe some of those costs, maybe some of those venues would have been um, would have been a little more palatable to people. There's lots of different solutions that are outside the box, and I think that that's the that's the key thing here. We need to start thinking outside the box because I, it's going to be interesting to see. Like the this winter games are are obviously getting hurt more here because the winter games are less of a prize, and there's less potential places to to bid for them. And um, some of the major cities in the world aren't close enough to mountains that will allow them to bid. But even in so that's why we're, why we're seeing such a reduction in costs here. And I think from a winter perspective, I think we need to to absolutely separate the mountain and the the non mountain events if we want to have any hope of having these games go to interesting places. Um, however, that's an aside. That's what I'm speaking about, the places that want to have winter games that don't even have winters. Yeah, well, I mean, Beijing is yeah. essentially what they're, they're hundreds of miles to the mountains from there. But at any rate, um, 
the summer games are, you know, there are some big American cities that are talking about uh, 26. Um, you know, there's still a possibility that, that Toronto may put a bid in, although I think it's increasingly becoming less likely for these very reasons. The 26 bid is going to be really interesting because the big prize does remain the summer games. There's a lot more prestige to that. Um, there's a lot more worldwide impact. You could argue for it more. We'll be very curious to see what cities bid for that. It should be a North American rotation, but the North American model, I don't know how how much support that places like Boston, like Washington, like San Diego or San Francisco, pardon me, are going to want to put into those games. I just don't know. Yeah, you're right. Absolutely right. And I would be really surprised if it goes to San Francisco. Having been to this city, just the price of land, it's mind-boggling to me. So they won't be able to build all those stadiums. It's almost impossible to do. Yeah. I, I, I suspect to their... Uh, to their credit that uh, the people of the U.S. may uh, balk a little bit of that. But uh, the, the one side of it, that I know the last time the U.S. was in a bidding and they ended up losing, one of the reasons was that the host city, the, the city doesn't like it when the host uh, city isn't like 100% rah, rah, rah behind it. It's one of the reasons why Toronto lost the 96 bid um, is because of the Bread Not Circuses campaign here in, here in Toronto, which was ahead of its time in retrospect at any rate. Um, because there might be less people bidding, period, uh, some of those concerns may become less uh, concerning to the IOC because they may just need for for optics reasons to go into a demographic country and they might just pick a bid that is a little less cost effective. But it, it comes down to that. The host, you know, the host potential host cities are in Oslo spoke with their feet. They would have loved the games there. And I'm sure that they all they love winter sports and they remember it's recent enough that everyone remembers 1994 for the most part, especially the people involved in a bid in Oslo right now, that they knew how brilliant it would be and they know how inspiring it would be and they knew that they would have a great party in those two weeks. But they walked with their feet because the the cost has become too out of control and they're just not willing to, to go there more. And uh, I think that that's the way the IOC is going to learn here. Almaty and Beijing are probably going to pull out, but uh, they're going to be stuck with Almaty or Beijing and the world is going to completely look down their nose at that for good reason. Yep, and it's still 2022. The games, no one wants. All right, on that note, uh, that was our special edition, which uh, turned into a full edition again. But uh, <laughs> we thank you for listening. Uh, we'll be back on Monday with uh, two solitudes. Uh, we got a, a guest from Chibaz USA to talk about the issue out there. Five rings will probably come down on Tuesday. Uh, we'll likely talk more about this stuff because it's a constantly moving target, and uh, Turfgate will continue. We'll find out what happens there. Until that time, Kevin, um, I guess uh, we can show us out in both ways. Have a great podium. (laughs) There you go. Have a great podium. If your phone, like mine, sucks and it's constantly being filled up by all of these podcasts, all of these archived podcasts of the Five Rings and Two Solitudes, there is a solution. Stitcher Radio, everyone. Download the app. It is the greatest app that has ever been produced for the iPhone and for the Android. Download it now. You won't fill your phone up with more five rings and two solitudes podcast because it'll all be there on demand for you to play anywhere you want on stitcher radio